This morning, Nehemiah chapter 3. If you got your Bibles, and I'm sure everybody does, if you don't, look it up on Google on your phone, or you can just follow along on the screen. But every January, we focus uh, our attention on some needed things in our church's life. Typically, if you're new here this morning, we just go through books of the Bible. Uh, and that is how we find our nourishment. It's from God's Word, and we typically just go through books of the Bible. But in January and other couple strategic times in the year, I'll take time to teach more topical messages that really are needed and strategic for where we are as a church. And this morning, I'll just go ahead and tell you where we're going. Um, January is a time that we encourage everyone to reconsider where you're investing in the life of the church. And this morning, I want to teach a message called Accomplishing God's Vision. And I hope you'll Take out something to take notes, whether it's your notes thing on your phone or a piece of paper or the shirt and the person's back right in front of you. Nothing, nothing is out of, out of bounds. Um, make sure you ask your neighbor before you write on their shirt. But I do hope you'll take notes this morning. But we're going to be talking about accomplishing God's vision and trying to answer the question, really, what are the characteristics of a thriving church? If you're looking for the book of Nehemiah, it's just a few books before Psalms. It's one of those books that can be hard to find, and I don't fault you. I do want you to be familiar with your Bible, but um, just to help you out, it's right just before Psalms, just a couple of books before. And we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's one of Michelle's very favorite books of the Bible. I told her this week that I was teaching Nehemiah. She goes, yay! And we were talking to Caroline about it this week. She didn't really do that. I just, by the way, I just want to apologize for how I was last week. I don't know what happened. I had had a week off from teaching, and I came back with more energy than probably was deserved for the next month. So this morning, I intentionally, and I I had voices going on. Did y'all remember all the voices I used? It was crazy. If you missed it, go listen online. It's a real dandy. Um, Great content, but I was in rare form. So I've intentionally cut back on my caffeine this morning. I'm just trying to roll with it, okay? Um, Nehemiah chapter 3 but yeah Michelle said yeah and we were telling Caroline this morning about it and she said is Nehemiah about baby Jesus and I said yeah ultimately <laughs> you know it really is though uh, Nehemiah is definitely a foreshadow of Jesus and, and, a, and, and really I do hope you know no matter where we are in scripture it all is about Jesus friends and I hope that, that you know him and that you know life in him but this morning, uh, we are going to Nehemiah. And just to set up the book a little bit, I don't have time. I did teach a study. It was about three years ago, a full series on Nehemiah. You can still find it on, online on our website. Go back and listen to it. I don't have time to teach a full-on study, but it is important before we get to our passage that you know a little bit of the background of this great book. And really, um, as Nehemiah opens... You've got to remember that the Jewish people, God had promised to Abraham, of course, the promised land. They had realized that promise and moved into the promised land. A lot of history has passed by the time we get to to Nehemiah. But the Lord, uh, because of Israel's disobedience and their continued rebelliousness and just hard-heartedness toward the Lord, he had promised, prophesied that that they would lose the land, that they would be taken away. And in fact, that's what happened, that the Jewish people were taken uh, into exile uh, by, you remember King Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah, so he, he went in and pretty much ransacked the beautiful city of God, city of Jerusalem, which was kind of the capital of Israel. And 
and he took the people into, into captivity. And they had been living in Babylon. I mean, you could imagine the anguish of, just like around the world today, we see people who um, are displaced. They're moved because of circumstances outside their control. And you could imagine just the anguish, the heartache of the people of Israel, especially because of what it represented as more than just a physical move, but of this shame because they had disobeyed the Lord, because they had brought reproach upon God's name and allowed the city to be destroyed. And, oh, it was just heartbreaking. But the, the Jews had been living there in Babylon. But then another king, the king of Persia, came and actually conquered um, Nebuchadnezzar, or his uh, successor, the King Cyrus. And they, they took control of all the territory of Babylon, but also the territory that Babylon had, had conquered, including Israel and Judah. And Cyrus, about 50 or so years after uh, they were taken in captivity, he actually announced that the Jewish people, the people of Israel, would be allowed to return to their homeland. And you can imagine the joy after years of fasting and praying and hoping and claiming, depending upon God's promise for the restoration of his people, believing his word was not in vain, all those original promises. God does fulfill that promise in turning another king's heart back toward Israel and allowing people to go back into the Holy Land, back to Jerusalem. Isn't that awesome? It's such a good moment in the history of Israel. And they begin to go back in stages and you... You probably have, have heard some of the other, um, you've read the, the Old Testament books and you remember Zerubbabel and Jeshua and how they begin the early rebuilding of, especially they, they begin with relaying the foundation of the temple and those most holy sites in Jerusalem. And some of the, the prophets come during that time, Zechariah and Haggai, but then you've, you've got some other waves and you, you get Ezra and then we get to Nehemiah. And this is probably um, around 445 B.C., and what happens is he hears, as they got back into Jerusalem, and this is going somewhere, right? Thank you for sticking with me so far. <laughs> this is going somewhere. It's a, it's a wonderful story, though. Um, as they get back into Jerusalem, they realize that the city is in, is in disrepair. I mean, it is, it's been ransacked. And God calls out his people toward a vision of restoration, Toward a vision of, of bringing Jerusalem back to be the city that he originally intended it to be. That he would be the God who would restore his people. And this is our God. He is one who rebuilds, he restores, he renews. He makes the bitter and he turns it to sweet. He makes the broken and he turns it beautiful again. And, and this is beautiful time, but it is, it's a kind of a real messy situation. And Nehemiah hears of the brokenness and disrepair of what's going on, especially all the walls, these huge walls that fortify the city. And God calls him and he asks of his king. Nehemiah was also in captivity, but serving a king. And he asked if the king would allow him to go back to, to lead and to help in any way he could. And that's in fact, the king gives him favor. And Nehemiah returns to his home city, his hometown of Jerusalem. And he becomes a godly visionary leader for God's people at the time to move them into mobilize them into the work that would be needed to fulfill the vision that God had for his people. 
a vision that would result in the glory of God and the rebuilding of that city. And so we're going to talk this morning about some of the things that I see in Nehemiah chapter 3. It's not all the things that are needed for a thriving church, but there are some important lessons for us to learn as it relates to what it looks like for us to be a thriving church that accomplishes God's vision. So I'm going to read the chapter. We're going to walk through three points very briefly, and then um, there's going to be some application. I'll just go ahead and tell you, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen who are looking to have children, this chapter is full of wonderful potential names for your babies. (laughs) Then Eliashiv, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the high priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and they set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Emri built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hazok. Hakoz, excuse me. Got to be careful. Repaired. And next to them, Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, and the son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve with the Lord. Joida, the son of Paseah, and Mushalem, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yashana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, repaired Malatiah and the Gibeonite and Jadon, the Berenathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired. And next to them, Jediah, the son of Harum is repaired opposite his house. And next to, see, some of y'all are jealous that you're not up here reading this, aren't you? Next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Melchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section in the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it, and they set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and they repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Mekhajah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Hose, ruler of the district of Mitzvah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. He built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as, all, as as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bezur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Bani, next to him, Heshabiah, ruler of the half district of Kela, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, 
Bobby, the son of Hanadad, ruler of half the district of Kela. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mitzvah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory of the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabbai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hekoz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priest, the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Ashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Mysiah, son of Anani, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king of the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired, each one opposite his own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemamiah, the son of Shekinah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, excuse me. And Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. And after him, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, repaired opposite his chamber. And after him, Machijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is God's word. 10,000 points to me for getting through that. (laughs) Now, this is one of those chapters of the Bible. I know you probably get to chapters like this and you go, skip. (laughs) Right? The, The laugh means you're guilty. Now, Why do I read that whole passage, even have us study this whole passage today? Because I believe from the bottom of my heart that all of God's word is profitable. I truly believe that. And I don't want you to skip any passage when you come across it. Because I really believe that God is teaching us in his word. I also believe that in this chapter in particular, there is a a host of great lessons for us. And you might think, what is the lesson other than the baby names or what not to name the babies? All right. I want to point those out to you this morning because I really do believe that this chapter is very intentional. They could have just said, and they built the wall, but they didn't just say that. And I believe there's a reason they didn't just say that because I believe that it's important for God's people to understand not just the vision that God puts forward, but how to go about carrying out that vision as we do it together. So a couple of points this morning. The first point is this. In accomplishing God's vision, here's what you got to do. First, accomplishing God's vision realizes one purpose. Accomplishing God's vision realizes one purpose. Under that, you can write this. A thriving church is unified. A thriving church is unified. If you go back to chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles, 
There's a verse that I want to point out this morning. It's here on the screen. Verse 17. As Nehemiah is, after he surveys the need and the destruction, God gives him a clear vision of what is to be done. He rallies the people together. He calls a big meeting and he stands in front. And he says that I said, in the scripture it says this, I say, you see the trouble we're in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. As they get to work in chapter three, I will tell you that there is not a soul who is working that doesn't know the singular purpose for which they are working. I will tell you that every one of those folks who are named in chapter three knows what they are about. They are singular in their purpose. And accomplishing God's vision does require a single-minded purpose for the church to thrive. We've got to be unified in our vision. I really believe the people of Nehemiah's day who end up accomplishing what they set out to accomplish were successful because they followed God's leader. They followed a clear vision. They all kept their eyes on the goal and they worked with the singular purpose to the glory of God. God calls his people to be unified to be visionary people. Y'all have a vision. I don't just mean like, can you see me today? But are you a visionary person? God calls us to be visionary people, but he calls us to have our vision unified as a church toward the things that God would have us to be about. Of course, we know everything works to the glory of God. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Y'all know that verse? Anybody? Do all things for the glory of God. Everything works for the glory of God, whether we eat, whether we drink, and all things, we do all things for the glory of God. Our vision as a church is to make much of God. Some people get wrapped up in these religious phrases, do all things for the glory of God. What does that mean? It, you can't, we can't make God glorious, okay? God is already glorious. What does glorious mean? It means he's the best, there is nothing greater, better, or gooder. That's not even a word. There is, there is nothing that can compare with how awesome God is. He is perfect in every way. You have never known anything so beautiful, so splendid that would capture your awe and attention any more than the person of God. We don't make him glorious. God is glorious. Would y'all agree? function and the purpose of our church, our vision, is to reflect his glory, to live together in such a way that as people see us, they realize how awesome is your God. That is what it means to make God glorious. It's like holding a mirror under the sun. You know, we're not doing anything to the sun. We're just reflecting the radiance, the brilliance, the brightness of the sun for what it is. Does that make sense? We as a church are to be about God's glory. 
And we're to be single-minded and wanting to live together as unified people to make much, to make much of God. The scriptures speak, I'll give you a couple other verses for how important this kind of unity is. In Acts chapter two, the formation of the early church, we see that they de- the people were together. The early church was together. All and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. They were one, friends. They broke the bread together. They prayed together. And it says that people all came among every soul. People were looking. See, God was receiving glory. People were looking at the church and going, what is going on there? God was being glorified through his people as they were united together. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were what? Can y'all read that? It's kind of small, sorry. They were together. And they had all things in common. Unified. Thriving. How were they thriving? They were unified. In Acts chapter 4, just two chapters later, we see, you, you, you might ask yourself, well, does that continue on. I mean, how long does unity last, really? Acts chapter 4, they're still together. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in what? In common. Not just unified like, oh, we're in the same room this morning. Not just unified like, yeah, hey, how you doing? You know, we're all friendly together. But the unity that the Bible speaks that the church had then and should continue to have now was a deeper unity. It's a unity of heart and it's a unity of soul that we share together this deep understanding that we have been transformed by God and we live together. Our, the purpose of our existence now together as a church is so that other people might know our great God who in his love gave Jesus that we might be transformed and made new again. We want other people to experience the same. Our mission statement together, we say we are being transformed by Jesus to impact the world. Deep down in our heart, we are one. That's God's vision and purpose of the church. There's some other passages I want you to write down. Ephesians chapter four, verses one to seven. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called with humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of of the spirit in the bond of peace. His encouragement to us, to the church of Ephesus and to us today is that we might maintain this kind of unity together. For he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as we're called in the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. What do you hear there? Again, the singular nature that we are to be in together. A thriving church is unified. Another passage for you this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 6 says, Yes, there's a variety of gifts, but there is the same Spirit. There's a variety of service, but the same Lord. A variety of activities, but it is God who is in all and through all who empowers everyone. Yes, we, we are all different here this morning, but there is one who unites us. Our vision is to make much of God to be united in Jesus, to be empowered by the one spirit who is in all of us. We are to be one together. Another passage for you. Philippians chapter two, verses one and two. Paul says to the church of Philippi, if there is any encouragement of Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by doing what? By being of the same mind 
having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Nehemiah rallied God's people together to say, you know what, friends? It's not about what each one is, is, is wanting to do and trying to make the self-purpose for everybody's life. No, that God has given us a singular vision. He has called us to one task. Look at the needs around us. See the city that is in disrepair and see the vision that God would have us to work on together. Now, who's in? Put your hands in. We're going to be of one mind and we're going to be of one accord. We're going to have a singular purpose. We're going to be a unified people. And you can just imagine the big pep rally. My old boss before the Lord really did a work in my life and called me to ministry. I worked in a marketing agency. And the CEO, we had a huge team meeting every morning. Anybody ever work for companies where you have a team meeting every morning? We call it the, the, the morning pep rally. And man, oh man, it was. I mean, and if you were late, you were in trouble. Some of y'all are going to get in trouble. If, if you had a pep rally, y'all would be in trouble. Because if, if you were late, everybody knew it. But you got there. And he would always get in the middle and literally he'd like put all our hands on the thing. Oh, 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 let's make it a great day. You know, and he, I'm sorry, I said I was, like, I was not going to do that. Um, but he would get all excited and literally you would say, let's make it a great day. And you turn around and look at people. But it was only after he had cast vision for the day and everybody was on the same team. We knew our marching orders and we put our hands in and we went up just like you see in the football field, you know. And there was one purpose, win the game if you're a football coach. Or that day, for him, it was make money, you know. <laughs> um, go and make me some money. So um, he's a better guy than that. But in the same way, this happens in the church. You can almost imagine a pep rally that day uh, with Nehemiah. And he's rallying him around that central vision that God had called him toward. And what, what is our central vision? Maybe you could say it's Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. I mean, that what we call the great commandment, it's what we are about, friends, as a church. I, John, uh, it's not John Piper, but he used the quote, and I've used it since. It's now in our living room. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We need a singular vision to live for Christ and to do it together as his body. That's what he's saying in Matthew 28. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're to be about one vision together, friends. A thriving church is unified. And I, I am so thankful that God has given us a clear vision as a church. I'm so thankful that God has given us leaders that rally people around this vision, but it is important for us always. Each and every one has a responsibility to not just sit here week in and week out, be a physical president, be physically united, but in your heart and in your soul that you would align yourself with the vision of God, making much of God here in Memphis and making much of God around the world, being... uh, having a vision, being set apart for this, like Paul says, being single-minded with one goal, that we might know Christ more, be more transformed by him as we grow in our love relationship with him. And also that we might make Christ known 
being more and more effective together deep in our hearts, this is what God calls you to and he calls me to. He calls every one of us to be aligned and deep in our heart and in our soul with the vision of making much of Jesus. Amen? And I want us in the next season of our ministry to be a thriving church that is unified as we realize one purpose together. Second thing I see from this passage is this, that accomplishing God's vision requires many types of work. Not only does, does it mean that we realize one purpose together, but it requires that we accomplish many types of work. And underneath that, you can just write this. A thriving church is engaged. You can go back one, sorry. Thriving church is engaged. So a thriving church is unified. Second, a thriving church is engaged. If you look at the passage, and again, I can't just stand here with my Bible and read through it all again, but I do want to point out on the screen a couple of things for you to see. If you look at the different things that are highlighted for us in the passage, remember I told you I really believe this is given to us with purpose that we might understand what it means to accomplish God's vision. Part of what I believe he wants us to see is it takes a lot of different kinds of work. We got to get engaged. Look at what's mentioned in verse 10, 23, 28, 29, and 30 of chapter 3. You have that phrase, in their neighborhood. Do y'all remember hearing that phrase? This guy worked in his neighborhood, and this guy worked across from his house, and this guy's worked in, in their neighborhood. He's, Nehemiah has a, a big vision, and it's a big city, and there's a lot of work to do. And in each neighborhood, people are engaging in work. They're recognizing the needs in, in their neck of the woods, so to say. They're seeing the needs on their street across from their house, in their community. And they're plugging in. Also, you see, you've got work being done on the tower in verse 8. That's pretty cool. Who would love, verse 13, to be working on the dung gate? Just saying, that's a fun job, right? Um, not so much, but it's needed work. It's the gate that led out to that valley where a lot of the trash was burned outside of the city that Jesus referred to several times as he was teaching, uh, where the worm never dies. You've, you've heard of that before, but the, the dung gate there in the city, people were engaging to rebuild that. They were applying energy and effort to get to work to see that that thing is restored. In verse 15, you, and in other verses too, you've got this mention of doors and bolts and bars. This is different. Completely different than the work that were going on in some of the neighborhoods or in the tower or the Dungate. People are working to put doors on. You might think this is silly, but it's not going to be in a second. Verse 4, 5, 21, and 27 of chapter 3, you also have people that are mentioned that are in support roles. They're not leading the work in their neighborhood or on the tower or on the Dungate or the doors, bolts, and bars, but they are simply called to be supporters for that work. You've got a lot of, of types of work that are required if the vision of God is going to be accomplished. Now, some people think that to be a part of a church is simply to come in, sit on Sundays, enjoy a nice message, give a little bit to charity, make sure the church doesn't go bankrupt. Uh, D.L. Moody <laughs> described this, and, and he was calling the church out for this. Thankfully, that is not the heart. Listen, if you come in our church, I don't think anybody <laughs> thinks that that's what we're about. We work hard, but listen, it is the reality of church that we are to be hard at work to accomplish the vision that God has given us. We are to be people who are fully 
engaged to make sure that the things that God has put before us are accomplished. After the wall is built, Nehemiah is reflecting in chapter 4, and I'll just point this verse out to you. Look at, look at it in your Bible if you'd like. But in chapter 4, verse 6, Nehemiah says, So we built the wall, and all of the wall was joined together to half its height for, for what? The people had a mind to work. Nehemiah, Nehemiah is not standing there going, Look what I did. Look at me. I'm so great. Look at all the things I accomplished, you know, or, or wow, just poof, miraculous. The wall was built. No, he's saying, he's, he's giving us an insight into how the vision that God had given his people was accomplished. He said, the wall was built. Yes, we rejoice and we thank God for how he has brought fruition of the vision that he gave us. But let me tell you how it happened. The people had a mind to work. He's saying the folks didn't sit on the sidelines they weren't just idly going, hmm, wonder what Nehemiah's gonna do today. Oh, it's pretty fun. Let's, let's see how Nehemiah gets to work accomplishing God's vision. They weren't hanging out in their house expecting somebody else to show up and do the things that needed to be done. No, everybody took responsibility. And they realized that if the work was gonna get done, it's gonna happen by us choosing to get engaged with it. Now, none of this is to surplant only what God does because even the work we do, the apostles tell us we do by the grace and the power that God himself supplies. But it does require us to get to work. A couple of verses for you for this one. Just references. Philippians 1, 27. Paul says to the church of Philippi, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come see you or I'm absent, I might hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, that speaks to the unity we talked about last time, but look here, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Striving, what does that connote? It connotes hard work, that you're like in the gym, you are working at it. Everybody's one, but you're one in this, that you're working side by side for the faith of the gospel. Another verse for you. Romans chapter 15, verse 20 to 21. Paul speaks, as you see people accomplishing God's vision, you see them hard at work. Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. And the work God has called him to, to accomplish the vision he put on his life. Paul said, I am an ambitious person. I'm gonna go out and get it. Another verse for you. First, Second Timothy chapter four, verse two. It says, do your best as Paul encourages his, his mentee, Timothy, to present yourself to God as one who is approved, a worker, but no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Timothy called to be a teacher and overseer in the church, and Paul is saying to him, work at it. Do your best. Put forward your best effort. Make sure that there's nothing that you hold back to make sure that as you handle the word, you do it in a way that is right as you present it to God's people. Another verse. Matthew chapter four, verse 19, Jesus says to his disciples, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Fishing involves work. Fish don't just come in usually, pop up on the shore, right? To be a fisherman, you go out and you find the fish. Jesus is teaching us something, I believe, 
not only about the call he's put on our life to be evangelists and disciples, but also to be people who work at that. Another verse for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10 to 11. We urge you, brothers, do this more and more to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we've instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Working, taking responsibility, being one who would not be dependent on others, who, who would be one who would not put shame to the, to the name of Christ and to be one who could be generous with what God has given them. Another verse, we'll stop with this one. Acts chapter four, verse 34 to 35 says, there's not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each who has need. How do poor people receive help? How do needy people receive compassion? How do lost people hear the gospel? Do we just wait on another government check? Or is it the call of the church to get busy doing everything that we can do to engage our neighborhoods, to engage the gospel, to engage with bringing help to those who are hurting? That is our responsibility, and it takes work. It takes work to sell your stocks and give them to the poor. It takes work to divest yourself of resources. It takes work to plug in. It takes work to go next door and to share the gospel, doesn't it, friends? But isn't this part of accomplishing God's vision for us? Yes, it is. A part of accomplishing God's vision is this, that we've got to realize that it requires many different kinds of work. And we've got to realize it requires for us individually to be engaged engaged, not passive, sitting on the sidelines, not waiting for somebody else to do it. But we've got to take responsibility and engage from our hearts, through our hands, in the work that God has called us to. What does that look like in the context of a church like ICC? I mean, there's so much, a lot of people thank us and celebrate the work the the outcomes of the work that we do. But just like Nehemiah, as a leader, when people come to me and they thank me for all the things going on around the community or around the world, I say, you know what? Yes, God is a great God. He's given us a big vision, but our people work hard. They set a mind to work. How, How do pastors get trained in India? People like Emily, who shared this morning and the team, work to raise money. They work to use their vacation to go. And the whole week of vacation, they work their tushes off to love and to shepherd and to train and to equip and to encourage. That, that's how it happens. Our kids this morning are back in the back uh, being discipled and, and loved and encouraged in the word of God. How does that happen? Do they just, the volunteers just show up on a Sunday morning and say, I hope it goes well. No, they're working hard to prepare before they even get here. Same with your small group leaders. And when they're here, they're working hard the entire time that we're sitting in worship, engaging with worship and the word, working to love and nurture and disciple kids in the way of the Lord. Aren't you thankful for that? How does local ministry happen? How do people get brought to Christ when we baptize people? Do you think I'm the one that wins everybody to Christ just because I'm baptizing them? No, each person we baptize represents the work of someone in our church who has loved someone enough to go out of their way to befriend them, invite them in, to begin sharing the gospel with them and bringing them into relationship with Jesus Christ. God's vision is accomplished. He is glorified, but that comes to the work of his people. I could go on, but I don't have to. 
all the things that we do together, that we're called to do together as a church, require work. The question is, are you engaged? In your heart, are you unified? Secondly, are you engaged? The third point, and then I gotta go. I'm getting hungry. Like Caroline says, she says, mommy, my belly says this. It's so funny. This morning she said, mommy, my belly says I'm hungry. And then Michelle said, well, I think we need to go to the bathroom first. And she said, my belly says I don't have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Anyway, my belly says right now I'm hungry. But God's word feeds us. Third, third, accomplishing God's vision. This is the last one in case any of you are anxious to get out. If you think I'm boring or if God's word's not good enough. But listen, sorry, I didn't mean to throw in the last one. Third one is accomplishing God's vision rallies all types of people. Accomplishing God's vision rallies all types of people. And what I want you to write down with this is this. A thriving church sees everyone involved. A thriving church sees everyone involved. Now, we go back to the baby names, okay? All of those names that were in Nehemiah chapter 3, why didn't he just say, these folks... Everybody just worked. I mean, he could have just given us that verse in chapter four. We talked about this earlier. Again, I think there's great purpose in the way that God had the scriptures written because it helps us to see part of how God's vision is accomplished. And here here it is. All of those names that I stumble through and you stumble through and we go, who is that? And why do they call them that? Listen, each of them represents a unique individual, a person, a mom, a dad, a business person, a caretaker, a young man or older woman. I mean, we don't know all their stories, but we know their names and each name represents a different person and something unique. And here's what I'd like to say. Just look at the list of the different people that are mentioned here. You've got rulers who are engaged in verse one. It mentions priest in verse one. In verse eight, it mentions perfumers. People who like work at Macy's and they sell you the stuff, you know? I'm always a sucker for that because I, I like smelling good. Verse 8, it's because I sweat when I teach. Um, goldsmiths. In verse 12, it mentions men. In verse 12, it mentions women. Verse 31, it talks about merchants. In verse uh, 7, it talks about government officials. What's the point of this? The point of it is Nehemiah has gone to great lengths to name all the people who are involved because every person is important. And they all are unique. They all represent something unique that God is doing in their lives to bring them to be engaged in the work. This is the way God's work is done. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 celebrates the diversity that God puts in the body. It says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit, variety of service, but the same Lord, variety of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. It goes on to say this. For to one is given the spirit, the utterance of wisdom, and to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another, faith by the same spirit, to another, gifts of healing by one spirit, to another, working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. In Romans chapter 12, you see this. For by the grace given to me, I say, everyone among you not think of himself more highly than he ought, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. For we're one body, we have many members, 
and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one in Christ and individually we're members of each other. But we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let's use them then. If prophecy in proportion of faith, if service and serving, the one who teaches and teaching, the one who exhorts and exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I could go on, but I won't. You need to go back and look at these passages later. That passage in 1 Corinthians 12 describes the church like a human body. The human body is made up of nose and eyes and ears and liver and kidney and and other things that I don't know. I'm not smart enough to understand. But oh, legs and knees and toes, head, shoulders, knees and toes. That's it. Um, head, shoulders, knees and toes. That's it. So, but we understand the diversity and complexity of the body and we celebrate how all of those parts come together to allow the body to function for its intended purpose, right? In the same way, God has made the church with lots of different members and none of the members are the same. Each of them has a unique role. Some of you are shaped with big mouths like me and you stand in front and you, like Sarah Kirkon this morning, proclaim the ministry opportunities and it makes you want to get involved. Some of you are quiet types of people. And you like working behind the scenes to support the work. Some of you are women. Some of you are men. Some of you are older. Some of you are younger. Some of you love working with the elderly. Some of you love working with kids. Some of you are nerdy. I mean, book smart. And you like being on the finance team. Praise God for you. Some of you are people people and you love small groups. Some of you are hospitable. God shaped you to welcome and you open your home week in and week out so small groups can meet there. Some of you like cooking and you use that to invite strangers into your home and to share the gospel with them. Some of you are gifted with prayer and you come early on Sundays and pray in a back room throughout the service or stand at the back at the end of the service to to make sure that God's spirit is moving among our people. I mean, I could keep going, but it takes a variety of, uh, God celebrates diversity and in fact empowers us in diverse ways for the needs of, of the accomplishing the vision that he's given to us. Isn't that great? Nehemiah celebrates that. And he's saying, you know what? God's, to accomplish God's vision, you've got to rally all types of people. And if you're going to thrive in God's church, it's going to mean that everybody gets involved. Are you involved in the work of ministry that God has gifted you for? Are you using your gifts and skills to plug in and engage for that bigger purpose that unites us all? This is a good chapter, isn't it? Well, I'm done. Some of y'all are happy, some of you are sad. In closing this morning, I want you to watch this video of a couple of people from our church, and then we'll close our time of worship a couple people from our church who want to share with you this morning why they have chosen to get around singular vision, to be engaged, and to work in the areas of their gifting and skill. I'm Julie Kerrigan. I'm the Worship Logistics Leader. Um, it's a new role here at ICC. Um, it's going to be an exciting time of just kind of helping lead the service um, and making sure that everything works behind the scenes. I have been praying that God would lead me and show me a way to get more involved in um, church. And I, I wanted to be able to use what I do as a profession in church as well. And I, I don't know. I, I'm a manager, so what does that look like? How do you manage at church? So I just prayed about it, and I just laid it out to God, and I said, you know, I can't sing. I don't I don't play musical instruments. I don't like to speak in front of people. So what does that look like in church? 
So I just I just laid it out, and you know I said, God, if you want to use me, I'm willing, but you're going to have to provide the opportunity for me. And a few weeks later, Robbie came up to me and asked me if I would take on this leadership position, and I'm really excited about it because it is kind of a behind the scenes. Um, position, which is where I feel like I do really well. And so God just provided this opportunity where I can help coordinate and bring people together and kind of orchestrate things. But I don't have to be the face of something, which makes me comfortable. And it it was really um, kind of eye-opening that God really listens to my heart and He knows you know, where my thought processes are and where I'm comfortable and where he can stretch me, but not so much that I'm not happy. So he genuinely cares about, you know, our fears and um, he just develops us and our strong points. My name is Rob Hodum and uh, I've been on the personnel committee for about a year now and I've been the leader of the men's small group for about three years. Um, it's really been my experience that, uh, you know, especially like leaders in, in the Bible, they didn't decide they were going to be leaders. They discovered that they were called to be leaders. Moses didn't decide to lead people out of Egypt. God told him at the burning bush, you're going to lead these people out. Uh, David didn't decide that he was going to be the king. Uh, uh, Samuel came, and he had Jesse go and pull David out of the sheep pasture, and he brought him in, and he anointed him as king. And so the way that I was called, the way that I found out, the way that I discovered uh, was that I was that I was asked to do it. I, I'd never been in leadership in church. I hadn't even gone to church for 30 years, um, and I, I certainly didn't anticipate being a leader. But uh, someone asked me, and I, I felt like it, it was the Lord calling me to do it. And uh, again, I wanted to, to be of service. So uh, after pray, praying about it and considering it, I said yes. I'm Lisa Buffard, and I've been attending ICC for about three years. My husband and I joined as members and um, recently I started serving on the finance team and I'm one of a five member team that directs all of the finances here at ICC. So I am an accountant by training and therefore accountability is something that I'm very focused on and I find that is very important in my life and in my work and I really feel that in the church we are accountable to use our gifts according to God's purpose and whatever that the gifts God has given us um, unfortunately mine are not music and they are not public speaking obviously Uh, but I am very very good with numbers and very good with finance and I was thrilled when an opening came up in the finance team and I was able to join the team and become an active member of that team. It's been a blessing to me this past year just to be able to help the uh, assist the pastoral team and the people that work at our church. Here recently we hired Katie Musser. I was participated in that and it's just wonderful to see God's work. I know it's uh, his will that she be here. By all accounts she's doing a great job and she and Aaron are wonderful people and I just thank God that I was part of it. I think I'm excited because I, I believe God has given me some talents in um, orchestrating people and leading people. And I've never really been able to use that at church. I use it well in my work life, and I believe God blesses our secular work life. But at the same time, I want to be able to use that to further His kingdom. When you commit to having a role, whatever that role may be, initially you may think, gosh, I don't have time for this. You know, it, it's just going to take so much of my time or, or it's going it, it, to, it's, it's a demand on my time. But in the end, what you find out is that, that it's actually more of a blessing than anything else. 
and that you are receiving this wonderful blessing and this um, experience that you're getting to take part in this great church that is growing and being able to see all of that growth. Just just pray and you know talk to God and, and just lay it all out there and be really open and honest. And, you know, I think God uses willing people. He doesn't necessarily have, you don't have to be qualified. Um, You don't have to know everything up front. You just have to be willing and say, hey, God, you know, I want to be used by you. Um, Will you provide an opportunity where I can do well? I I think he'll provide it for you. You know, consider the the parable of the talents and, you know, that, you know, God gave me talents and he gave all of you sitting out there in the seats a talent. Uh, Some of you gave more than one talent. And uh, he's calling on us to use it. And uh, each of us is uniquely qualified to do an assignment, to do a job for the Lord. And we're here in this place, and there are positions in this church that, that He wants us to fill. He wants me to fill. He wants you to fill. And I would encourage you all um, to make an assessment of what talents did He give me. And, you know, don't be like the man who buried his talent in the sand. But be like the good servants who used their talents for the glory of the kingdom. You know, Jesus said, don't, you know, hide your light under a bushel, but let it shine before men so that the Father can get glory. And I would just encourage everybody, if you've got a light, and you've got one, you may not know it, but you've got a light, and you've got a talent, and what are you doing with it? Um, You need to make an assessment of that. And if you're approached, uh, or if you decide in your heart that you would like to be in a position you know, let somebody know, you know, volunteer for that. Or if someone approaches you about uh, serving, you know, prayerfully consider it. You know, is this something, is this a way that you can be of service to the Lord? Is this a way that you can love other people? Uh, Because you're uniquely qualified to do something. So I would just give everybody that encouragement. Find out what you're qualified for, what your talents are, what is your life, and use it for God's glory. As we move to response this morning, I just take ask that you take time now, wherever you are, just to get in a prayerful position. And you would just, just talk to the Lord and allow him to talk to you.